at First Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Holy Gospel according to John, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in, of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone deserves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Well, as I was talking about in the children's message just a few minutes ago, these past few days I've been thinking about repurposing things, about transforming something from its originally intended use into something newly functional. It's about uh, taking something that is outdated or unused and giving it new life. And I, I imagine this is something that people have always done out of necessity in some cases, like, as I mentioned, my grandma who lived through the Depression. But these days, as we consume ever more uh, single-use items, there's this whole concept called upcycling. And with the help of Pinterest, you too can turn an empty wine bottle into a charming wind chime. <laughs> so every now and then, there's a shift culturally or otherwise, and things that once had an important purpose are no longer needed in quite the same way. So reading closely this gospel lesson for today, we see Jesus uh, kind of arriving on the scene and ushering in a new era. He begins his public ministry at this wedding at Cana, and we begin to see this new era when God does not, uh, no longer demands obedience to, uh, to rules and laws and rituals, but instead God pours out grace and joy on God's people. So this is one of my favorite Bible stories, though I realize I have a lot of those. But this story is widely beloved, I think, for a few reasons. I enjoyed this account of Jesus being a wedding guest. That's kind of a unique role for him in this particular chapter. And I like to wonder if the bride and groom ever looked fondly back on their wedding day and, and said something like, well, isn't that funny? We didn't even know he was the son of God when we invited him to our wedding. Plus, this passage is just pleasant to reflect on because, you know, the big, the big problem, the big conflict doesn't have to do with illness or sin or demons or death. It's really just some partiers lamenting their empty glasses. 
So I even chose this story because I like it so much to be one of our stewardship uh, emphasis Sunday readings um, back in November. So if you're sitting there in the pew thinking like, didn't I just hear a sermon on this story? Yes, you did. (laughs) But don't worry, this is not the same sermon you heard last time. As I examined this story anew in these past few days, I've been turning over a new question in my mind. After years of reading this story, only this very week did it occur to me to wonder, why didn't Jesus just use the empty wine casks to hold the wine he was making? Whatever the original supply of wine they had started with came in, why wasn't that a more obvious choice of vessel for the latest batch of wine? That was their purpose, after all. And serving out of something that was intended for wine would have probably been easier than using the bath jars. And maybe, honestly, it's because Jesus just saw the stone water jars first. They were standing right there. Or maybe, just maybe, this was an intentional move, meant to convey yet another layer of richness and meaning to Jesus' first sign as he revealed his glory there at that wedding. Through details like this one, Jesus' revelation then continues to unfold to people who weren't even there at that wedding back then, but who who look anew at this text as the church in the world today. Maybe where we don't see the logic as humans, there is divine logic at play. So six stone water jars for the Jewish rite of purification. Each held 20 to 30 gallons, so with that range mentioned, maybe it means that there was an attractive assortment of large sizes and shapes. But whatever they looked like, they clearly had a distinct purpose. It is very plainly pointed out in the text. The jars held the water to facilitate some ritual of purification required by Jewish law or tradition. That is explicitly what these jars were for. So isn't it interesting that Jesus then saw those jars and had a different idea for them? The jars were created with the intention to help people keep the law, but now they are going to be part of this divine sign that was taking shape. These ritual water jars played a role in the unfolding of Jesus' first revelation of his glory, and it was a new role for them. Yes, they could hold water, but they realized a new calling when they discovered they could also hold gallons and gallons and gallons of wine to reinvigorate a joyful wedding celebration. That night, those six stone water jars were repurposed for God's purpose. This is not to say, though, that they couldn't just be rinsed out and used again for ritual bathing again when needed, maybe the next day. I had to do some research on that point. But these jars are made of stone rather than of clay pottery. Uh, clay pottery, when it becomes tainted by something, it's, it's irreversible. You just have to smash it. It can't be used anymore. But these jars that were made of stone are not made unclean by coming into contact with ritually unclean things. And that is according to the laws of the book of Leviticus. And that was kind of the draw of having stone water jars, even though they would have been more expensive up front. Um, Because they're difficult to make, you have to hew it out of one big rock. But they would have been um, also very heavy, (laughs) hard to move. But you didn't have to replace them very often. So that's that's the good thing about stone water jars. 
Okay, so the jars could have been turned around and used for ritual bathing. But I think we should consider this wedding to be a glimpse, a foretaste, an image and a metaphor of what was to come. As this long-awaited Messiah arrived among his people and began changing everything. In service of the new thing God was doing, those bath jars turned wine jars were repurposed for God's next purpose. Even if just for one night. This miraculous sign which opens Jesus' public ministry in John's Gospel is pointing us toward this imminent future. When distinctions between clean and unclean and between ritually pure and ritually impure, those would all be erased by a flood of mercy and a wide welcome to all. An imminent future when the burden of the law would be lifted and God's grace would cover all. In Jesus, we find and receive salvation beyond the keeping of hundreds of laws and rules and rituals and purification. The intention and function of those jars was for upholding God's law originally, and that was good for a time. But with Jesus comes this new era. And these important jars stood for, you know, once a symbol of the law, and now they're serving the revealing of gospel. As John spells out at the beginning of his gospel, the word has become flesh and lived among us. Jesus comes proclaiming and practicing not just law, but profound and abiding gospel that leads us to freedom. Instead of striving to maintain our own readiness and worthiness by our own careful observance of each and every law, instead of our doing and doing and doing and doing, now in Christ, God's grace is poured out abundantly on us before we even realize it's happening. In the reign of God, there is no longer need for distinctions and for ritual observances in order for us to be called worthy. Instead, there's just us. All of us redeemed sinners, and not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done in Jesus. So why not repurpose the trappings of the law like those old stone jars? Why not set aside the rituals and rules and celebrate God's new action for salvation in Jesus, which is not law, but is pure grace? Jesus has shown up at this wedding and now offers a new view of the heavenly banquet. A banquet set and shared not by those who have upheld every jot and tittle of the law, but by all who have simply received the gift of grace that Jesus gives. Can the big stone jars incidental in Jesus' first sign really mean all that? Well, that's the thing about signs, is they point us beyond themselves to something bigger. And so at the end of the story of the wedding at Cana, we're left to ponder not so much the quantity and quality of the wine and how it came to be, but rather we're left to ponder this one wedding guest, Jesus, whose identity is slowly beginning to be revealed in acts of power and in words of grace. Jesus, who was listened to and followed by not just a handful of newly recruited disciples once upon a time, but now by billions of people who have seen and heard the story of the wedding at Cana and have understood that it means something for them as well. 
because those six stone water jars are just one more compelling illustration of God's power to transform and to give new life and purpose. And they're about God's power to enter scarcity and lament and bring about joy and life. So that makes me think of you and me and all of us. We obviously are not stone water jars, but in what way might we be repurposed for God's next purpose, whatever that may be? It's an important question, but with one warning, we also need to remember that the repurposing itself is not our work. That is God's work. As I wrote on the front of the January newsletter a few weeks ago, we don't have the power to transform ourselves, but God does. That means we get to listen and watch for what God is doing next and jump in to participate as best we can. As God's story of salvation continues to unfold in the world, might we also realize a new calling? Might we be being called to reimagine, revision, and hop on board with a new purpose? And in light of our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians, how might all of those skills and talents and passions and energies that God has gifted to each of us, how might they be used to serve the gospel and participate in the revealing of God's glory in a new time and place. This is the season of Epiphany, when the church recognizes that God graciously reveals divine things to humble mortals like us. This is a joyful season, but it can also be challenging. Will we be open and alert and receptive to such revelations if and when they come to us? Will we be open to God doing a new thing in us and among us and through us? As we continue to seek greater faith and deeper understanding, we do trust that in Jesus, this most mysterious of wedding guests, we have this extravagant source of grace that will sustain us where we fall short and will give us joy amid struggle and sorrow. Through uncertainties and ambiguities, Jesus himself will lead and by grace, we will do our best to keep up. To God be the glory. Amen.